Awesome. Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, if you're new or visiting, like Becky was saying, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here. Uh, and, and like Becky was saying as well, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. And so we encourage you to check one of the small groups out. You can find all that info on our websites or talk to any of the people that you've seen up front. But we'd love to love to invite you into that. Uh, also love to invite you into our study in the, in the Gospel of John together. We've been working our way through John's account of Jesus' life and ministry for the better part of the last seven months or so. And two weeks ago, we got to the very end of the book. We kind of finished the, the Gospel of John. But before we start our next series, what I wanted to do is come back to a couple of passages that we had to kind of skip over in order to kind of line up our series with our, with our celebration of Easter. And, and so uh, we're going to... Kind of put out like a little B-Sides album release here, right? It'll be a couple extra tracks, right? A bunch of good ones that didn't make the original cut, but that are still worth listening to. So that's where we're headed here. This week we're taking a look at a section at the beginning of John chapter 8. And, and in this section in, in the Bible, we're going to take a look. We're going to see Jesus interacting with some religious leaders and, and a woman who they've uh, just caught in the red-handed in the act of, some, of sin. And, and they're trying to use this situation, as we'll see, to, in, in order to trap Jesus. And they want to force him to say something that's either going to contradict what God's taught or what Jesus has taught. And and what we're going to see is that Jesus, he masterfully turns this situation around that they intend to be used as a trap. And instead, he uses it to highlight the pervasiveness of sin and of lawbreaking in all of us, not just in the ones that we not just in the people we perceive as the worst of us. And what we're going to see as well is that he, he highlights how receiving grace and mercy, that has the power to transform our lives in a way that law-keeping and rule-keeping just never can. And so while uh, in the end we're going to see it's just like a really encouraging passage, the, the truth is that it's also a really challenging and convicting one because it's going to force all of us to wrestle with the reality of our own sin and our own need for God's mercy, not just somebody else's sin and somebody else's need for mercy. And it's going to do so by highlighting for us a type of sin that like zero people enjoy talking about. It's going to do it by highlighting the reality of sexual sin and not only is that an issue where, the Bible, where what the Bible has to teach flies in the face of pretty much everything our culture promotes and celebrates, it's often an issue that is associated with a deep sense of guilt and shame or pain or disappointment or regret or all those kinds of things. And so sexual sin is not some kind of vague, abstract thing. It's always a deeply personal thing. And so on the front end of our time together this morning, I just want you to know that I'm sensitive to those things. I don't approach these, this topic lightly or do it from a distance, right? It's not just, I don't have some kind of like pastoral like distance from whatever's going on here. Like it's real to me just like it is to you. And so as we study Jesus' words and as we wrestle with the uncomfortable topic of sexual sin and our own need for God's grace and his mercy in, in light of it, what I hope that you sense in me as your pastor is a tone and a posture characterized by humility and characterized by grace and characterized by compassion. Because just like you, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. But what I hope you also sense from me is a tone and posture of clarity and of hopefulness. Because what the Bible has to say about sexual sin is both incredibly clear and full of hope. Full of hope. 
As we see both the seriousness of our sin and the magnitude of Jesus' mercy, what my prayer has been this week is that the gospel might become really good news to you, the kind of good news that actually has the power to transform your life in some really deep and profound ways. And so can't wait to show it to you. So that in mind, let's pray. We'll, uh, we'll dive into God's Word together. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for you and thanks that you would keep your word for us so that in it we might know your heart and that we might know you. And, and so God, we just come before you this morning um, just dependent on you. God, I've been praying this week that um, just like the good news of your word uh, that you would enable us to be good soil that can receive it. And so God, might, um, might the truth and the goodness of who you are and all that you've done um, be good news that penetrates the soil of our hearts and that produces good fruit, that leads to life of fruitfulness and obedience unto you. And so, God, I just don't have any power to bring any of that about, um, but you do. And so I pray, God, as we study your word, that you would cause our hearts to be good soil that can hear from you the good news of the gospel and that it might transform us, we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. It reads this way. At dawn he appeared again in the temple court, speaking about Jesus here, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when he kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, the, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. He straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. But neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, before we dive into the details of this passage, we actually need to zoom out just a little bit. And I want you to take note of the fact that if you're reading this passage, in your, if you're following along in your own Bible, uh, what you'll probably notice is that these verses are either italicized or they're in brackets set apart or uh, they're just like in a footnote altogether, like all those verses are in there. And that's because your, your Bible probably notes that these verses aren't found in the earliest copies that we have of John's gospel, right? Until the invention of the printing press in the mid-1400s, the scriptures were passed down by means of handwritten copies, which are called manuscripts. And while we don't have any of the original copies of any of the books of the Bible, which is actually probably for the best, since knowing people, we just turn those into something weird to worship, and we'd be like bowing down before some paper, and that'd be awkward, right? Um, but what we do have are almost 6,000 manuscript or partial manuscript copies of the New Testament books alone, which not only is wildly more than any other work from antiquity, including works from Plato and Homer and even Roman historians like guys like Tacitus, who like your history books are based on his, his books, right? Not only do we have way more than any of that, the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament were copied with notably greater accuracy and with significantly earlier dating, right? 
So we have more accurate, better, earlier copies. And you might be thinking, listen, I don't care how accurate or how early those things are. Like a 6,000 round game of telephone, like there's no way that works out good for anybody, right? Like that, that just, for sure, there's just got to be tons and tons of errors. And the truth is, is that the huge amount of New Testament manuscripts that we have, it actually serves to accomplish the very opposite purpose. You see, it makes the errors a lot easier to spot. It makes the inconsistencies much easier to detect well-known, respected commentator, textual critic F.F. Bruce, he puts it this way. He says, if the great number of manuscripts increase the number of scribal errors, well, then it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the ancient original wording is, in truth, remarkably small. He goes on to add that of the few variant readings which, uh, which any doubt still remains among textual critics of the New Testament, they affect no material question of historical fact or of Christian faith or practice. And I go over all of that and kind of nerd out with you a little bit on that because there's two reasons. Number one, because I want you to know that whatever you believe about what the Bible has to say, you can have an incredibly high degree of confidence that the content of the Bible that you're reading is an accurate representation of what the original authors wrote. Right? It's not just some like weird telephonized bad version that you're like, I don't really know if this is the real thing. You can have a high degree of confidence that what you're reading is an accurate representation of what the original authors wrote. And secondly, I say that because the reason why this section that we're studying this morning is so uniquely marked in your Bible, there's not a lot of sections like this. There's one here, there's one at the end of Mark, um, just a, very, a handful, right? And that's because the oldest and best manuscripts we have of John, they don't include these verses, which means that it's very likely that it was either added later by John or by someone else. We, we, we're not sure. That being said, though, while well, pretty much every scholar agrees that the passage that we're studying this morning is probably not a part of John's original manuscript, uh, they also agree that there is no reason for us to doubt that it is a true story that actually happened, that it's an eyewitness account of something that really happened from, the life of, from Jesus' life and ministry. Right? It has all of the hallmarks of an authentic eyewitness account of something that, that actually happened Right? And just for example, right, it, has, like, it includes this detail about Jesus bending down and writing in the sand, but it doesn't tell you anything about what he wrote. Right? People have been wondering for 2,000 years, what did he write? Right? Spoiler alert, nobody knows. Right? And if they think they do, then you know for sure they don't, because right? it doesn't tell us. Right? But the fact that that detail is in there, right? like, if you're making up a story, you don't include that detail, because the only thing it does is distract you. Right? The only reason to put it in there is if that's actually what happened. Right, if it was what the eyewitness saw. Right, additionally, the, the things that the story illustrates for us are in alignment not only with Jesus' teaching elsewhere in John's gospel, but with the other gospel writers' accounts of his life and ministry and with the Bible as a whole. One pastor summed it up this way. He said, if we didn't have this story, we might lack some of the narrative color that it provides, but the same truth it teaches is taught throughout God's word. And so while we can't be 100% sure that this passage is the inspired word of God, you can be real sure that the things that are in here are true and right and good. And so as we take a look at this passage, what I want to do this morning is I want to highlight for us three really important truths that we see, not just in this passage, but that we see echoed throughout all of the Bible together. 
right? And so, uh, like, if we didn't have this one, we'd still have these truths, right? But I want to use it as a way to show you some things here. And the first one is this. All of us are serious sinners. All of us are serious sinners. The passage begins with the Jewish religious leaders, right? They're bringing Jesus, this woman that they just caught in the act of committing adultery. And, and they accurately assess that, the, that that's, a, that's, a, that's a sin that's punishable by death according to the Old Testament law. And so they ask Jesus, when they ask him, what do you say, right? They're not asking him about this woman's guilt. Like they've already, they've already assessed that. Instead, they're asking this rhetorical question about the, the punishment that they should dole out, right? And essentially what they're saying is, right, like Jesus, like what this woman's done is real serious, right? In the Old Testament, the law, Moses, Moses says, like, we, like the punishment is death, right? That's what God's law says, doesn't it, Jesus? And if the, the palpable smugness Right of their rhetorical question wasn't enough to clue you in to the fact that something weird is going on there. Um, verse 6 just tells you straight up, the whole situation was designed as a trap to Jesus. Right, They're trying to accuse him right, of either contradicting God's law or his own teaching on the importance of grace and, and forgiveness and humility. Right, and, right the, the thinking is like this. right, if, if he says no, don't stone her, then he's contradicting what God's word has said, and so they can nail him for that. And if he says uh, yes, go ahead and kill her. Then they'll just like tweet out their version of a political attack ad, right? And just be like, Jesus favors the death penalty for women, right? And then like that's just gonna like that'll just derail all kinds of other stuff, right? Like he'll just appear as some hypocritical teacher, and that'll ruin his credibility and his reputation with people, right? So, so it's real clear their motives are really messed up, right? This is not like a pure, it's not like a genuine, real situation. But even if verse 6 wasn't there, it's still pretty opposite. It's still pretty obvious that something's off because I mean it's like number 1, uh, spoiler alert, takes two to tango, right? And um, there is a woman here, but the dude just is just really remarkably absent, right? And Jewish law was really clear that if in order to put somebody to death for adultery, you needed two eyewitnesses to actually catch people in the act, right? It couldn't be like, "Ah, oh, I heard a rumor," right? death, right? That's not how it worked. Like you had to have two eyewitnesses see what was happening, right? And so if not one, but two people had caught this woman in the act of committing adultery, you can be real sure they also caught the dude, right? Like it's not like, ah, I I just didn't have a good view of whatever. Like, Like they saw what was going on, right? Additionally, the law doesn't just command, didn't just command that women caught in adultery would, should be put to death. Both Leviticus 20 verse 10 and Deuteronomy 22, they made real clear that, uh, that the guy caught in doing adultery, he deserved the same penalty, right? There wasn't some double standard for men and women. And yet, again, the religious leaders, they just really conveniently like, leave that part out, don't they? And so while they think they've trapped Jesus in this kind of no-win situation, uh, the truth is, is that Jesus saw right through their trap from the beginning. And, and the way that he responds to their rhetorical question, uh, it not only sidesteps their trap altogether, uh, it actually turns the tables back around. It turns the mirror back on their own sinful and twisted and hypocritical hearts. Verse 7, he responds this way. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, just to be clear, right? Jesus isn't saying that you have to be perfectly sinless in order to be able to like judge or punish someone else. Besides the fact that the Old Testament didn't require that, uh, just as like a basic principle of justice, that doesn't work, right? Like there aren't any perfect people. Like no court in the history of ever would function if that was the case. And so the question is, what what is Jesus doing here? What what is he really saying? 
See, what's going on is that Jesus is forcing the Pharisees to look in the mirror and to take a look at their own sin. Pretty much all the commentators point out that it is exceedingly unlikely, exceedingly unlikely, that the, Pharisees, that the religious leaders just happened to kind of catch this woman in the act of committing adultery. It is much more likely, highly probable, they all say, that she was not only deliberately set up so that they could catch her doing it, but that they also willingly turned a blind eye to the dude that was involved in the situation, right? All of which not only flies in the face of all God's repeated and abundantly clear commands opposing injustice and showing partiality and having double standards, but their actions just reveal that like, they, just, they just see this woman as a thing, Right? She's, not, she's not a person who's made in God's image and who has value and dignity and worth. She's just like a pawn in their power game. Right? They, they, they have no concern for her well-being or the unimaginably destructive power that sexual exploitation has on people. They just do not care. And so Jesus, he tilts the convicting mirror of God's righteousness back on them so that they might see not just the seriousness of her sin, but the seriousness of their own They don't have some moral high ground to look down on this woman from, or anyone else for that matter. They are just as guilty of breaking God's law as she is. That's why it says that from the oldest to the youngest, they started walking away. As they knew. The, The gig was up, the trap had failed, and their own sin was brought in front of them. It's at this point, right, that I think it's easy for us to look at the religious leaders and just be just totally disgusted with them. Right? Like, how could they not see the heinousness of their own sin, right? And, and you're not wrong to think that. The situation is really messed up. Like, it is, it is seriously broken. But the truth is, is that, uh, I think if we're honest, we're a lot more like them than we would like to admit. Right? You see, you and I, we all have this tendency to see the sin of others a lot more clearly than we see our own, and to believe that for whatever reason, the sin of others is a lot more serious than ours. I remember hearing a pastor one time humorously compare people to salsa. He said, uh, we tend to look at the peop- other people and think, wow, like they are really sinning in some spicy ways over there. But I mean, myself, I'm just like a medium to mild kind of sinner, right? Like we're just, we've dialed it back a few notches over here, right? But the truth is all of us are extra spicy sinners because the Bible makes clear that sin is not just bad behavior. Underneath all our bad behavior is a mutinously rebellious heart, at its core, what we believe is that we're the ones who know what is best and should be the ones who be able to decide what is true and right and good, not God. And so we stage a coup, right? And we, we eject God as the king and we enthrone ourselves as the ones who get to decide, right? And, and that leads to all kinds of bad behavior. But again, underneath all of that is this mutinously rebellious heart. You and I, we are all extra spicy sinners, See, the problem is that instead of seeing sin for what it really is, we just look at what it looks like on the surface and we start pointing out the specks in other people's eyes instead of getting rid of the log that's jammed into our own, like Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And we do this with all kinds of sin. But I think especially like we see happening in our passage this morning, we are especially prone to doing that when it comes to sexual sin. Even though all of us, without exception, are tempted to think and to act in ways 
that are at odds with God's good design for our sexuality, we are equally prone to maximizing it and pointing the sexual sin out in others' lives while ignoring and minimizing it in our own. David Platt in his book, Counterculture, he puts it this way. He says, Christians have this tendency to isolate certain segments of sinners who struggle with particular sorts of sexual temptation. We look at adulterers as this unfaithful lot who deserve to be ignored and left alone. We perceive our gay and lesbian neighbors as enemies in some cultural conspiracy to take over the country. We view porn addicts as perverts and prostitutes as projects and transsexuals as people who will pollute us if we get too close to them. We see other people as different from us and in some cases even dangerous to us, but the truth is we are all just like them and they are just like us, for we are all personally, biologically, culturally, and spiritually predisposed towards sexual sin. Some of us are just predisposed in ways that are more culturally or socially acceptable than others. And that stings, doesn't it? Because it's true. See, none of us, like all of us are spicy sexual sinners. We look at others and we have this comparison thing, but it's just a lie. And you've done that, and I certainly have. I'll never forget the day I got a phone call from Hannah's brother, Zach. He he and his current boyfriend had called us up out of the blue and they wanted to know, hey, what do you guys think about homosexuality and what the Bible thinks about that? And I was obviously caught off guard. I mean, literally, this phone call came out of the blue, just out of nowhere some afternoon. And and I remember fumbling around with my words, but saying essentially the fact that like the Bible seems to be clear that it outlines that the context for sex is limited between a man and a woman who are married. And it wasn't because of that specific conversation, but Within the next year, Zach had kind of cut off ties with everyone in the entire extended family. And despite our best efforts, I haven't seen or heard from my brother-in-law in almost 10 years. And I have thought about that conversation a lot over the years. You see, I don't regret what I said. The thing that I really regret is what I didn't say. And if I could go back, what I wish so badly, what I would have done is to confess my own sin to him and to acknowledge to him all the ways that, that like I think and act sexually outside of God's bounds for it. What I wish I would have said is that you and I were not different. On the surface, it might look different, but really it's just the same. We have both failed to live out God's good design for our sexuality. We're both sinners. See, that brings us to the second thing that I need to show you in the passage this morning. You see, the blindness and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their sin, it didn't negate the sinfulness of the woman's adultery. See, when Jesus says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone, he's not just trying to show the religious leaders the seriousness of their own sin, he is also affirming their assessment of this woman's sin and the punishment it deserved. Jesus is not excusing it. He's not minimizing it. He's not like letting her off on a technicality, like, ah, oh, double technicals, right? They, they offset, right? Like, everybody's fine. That's not what Jesus is doing. At the very end of the passage, Jesus tells her straight up, he says, leave your life of sin, which means that what she was doing was sin, that it was wrong. 
See, from beginning to end, the Bible is repeatedly, emphatically, abundantly clear that the boundary line of God's design for sex is inside the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And no matter what kind of linguistic gymnastics you try to do, the endless thing you keep always come up against is that there are precisely zero situations in the entire Bible when anything other than that is praised or celebrated. There are none. There are no other examples. And so when the Bible refers to adultery, it's not just talking about cheating on your spouse. It's talking about any and all sexual activity with anyone who is not currently your spouse. Whether that happens before or during or after marriage. People tend to ask like all these qualifying questions, right? Well, what if like what we're doing isn't like really, like what if we don't go all the way, right? Is that, is that fine? Well, the Bible would say, If what you're doing is sexual, then that is reserved for the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Well, what if we're engaged? Again, being engaged is not the same thing as being married. And so the Bible would be clear that's not okay. What about sex between, uh, what about same sex marriage or about polyamorous relationships? Well, again, is that the context of one man and one woman inside the context of a covenant marriage? No. And people sometimes say, well, Jesus never talked about any of that stuff. And the truth is, he most certainly did. More than 10 times in the gospel accounts, Jesus affirms the Old Testament's boundaries for sex being exclusively between a man and a woman who are married, just like you see him doing again here in the passage. He doesn't shift the line. He doesn't change it. In fact, Jesus actually takes sexual sin one step further. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 28, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it this way. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, we think adultery is about what you do with your hands, but Jesus says long before it gets to your hands, it's, it's stemmed deep in your heart. Right? Jesus says it's sinful for us even to look at someone who's not our spouse and to entertain sexual thoughts about them. Obviously, that includes things like pornography, but it would include things as well like having emotional affairs, right? Lusting after the attention and the, and the, and the, the focus of someone who isn't your spouse or cultivating emotional support structures with someone who's not your spouse. You know it's messed up, especially when it's like, yeah, I, I, would, I would be concerned if my spouse saw this or my future spouse saw this. That's how you, like, just one of the telltale signs. See, Jesus is saying that even if we don't commit the physical act of adultery, we're still guilty of sexual sin by means of our thoughts and our fantasies and our reading and our clicking and our affections. See, the Bible's view of sexuality is so radically different than the one of the world in which we live and the, but the question that we have to ask, right, is not just how is it different. Like, it's pretty clear how it's different. The question that you have to ask is not just how, but why. Why is it different? Why does God seem to care so much about the way that we practice sexuality and the way that we do marriage? Why does that matter to him? You see, our world wants us to believe that marriage and sexuality, that they're about us. They're ultimately for us. They're about our happiness and our joy and our satisfaction and our fulfillment. And so because they're about us, we should feel free to do them and practice them in whatever ways that seem right to us and feel good. As long as you're not hurting somebody else, do what you want. 
Well, from the very beginning, the Bible paints a very different picture of the purpose for both sex and marriage. You see, we, see, we tend to see those things as like an end. But the Bible paints them as a means to a greater end, as a way of pointing to a greater reality, as a way of revealing something about God's nature and his character to the world. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it teaches us that humanity is made in God's image, which means that unlike any other part of creation, humanity has the calling and the capacity to know God and to reflect his nature and character into the world. Men and women alike, Genesis makes clear, are made in God's image and they're created to reflect him. There's very clearly this incredible equality that God places on men and women in his word. And this difference is not just some added bonus. It's not just a happy accident and neither is it a liability. The, Genesis paints it as a necessity. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, God says it this way. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper that's suitable for him. See, creation makes, like the account in Genesis makes clear that creation is not complete. It's not good until both men and women are present. Because Adam alone could not fulfill his identity and purpose as God's image-bearing representative. He needed a helper. And just like, just to be clear, like when the Bible talks about a helper, right, it's not talking about like an assistant. The word that's used there refers to a necessary and indispensable ally. Necessary and indispensable. That's not an assistant. See, but who God creates as man's necessary ally is not just another who is just like him. See, because humanity needs both sameness, needs equality, but it also needs difference. Because that's what characterizes the nature of the God that we are made in his image of. See, when you look at the Genesis account, what you see is that humanity is made in God's image, and when it says that, it says, God says, let us make mankind in our image. Throughout the Bible, we have the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God who exists in multiple distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and so too there is one humanity with multiple distinct parts, male and female. There is both sameness and difference in God's image-bearing design. Genesis 2, verse 24 goes on to say, that is why. That sameness and difference, the, the tension of that, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. You see, God's design for the purpose of sexual intimacy is that it's a way in which humanity gets to uniquely reflect his nature and his character in the physical union of a husband and a wife, of a man and a woman who are equal and yet different, same and yet distinct. There's this incredible picture of the unity and equality and diversity of the God whose image we bear. And so sex and marriage are not ultimately about our pleasure. God gives us them as good gifts for our joy, and they are good. But ultimately they're about more than us. They're about Him but it's not just God's nature that we see Scripture says that those things reveal. It's his character as well. You see, over and over and over again throughout the Bible, God is constantly talking about himself as a husband or a bridegroom and then as his people, as the church, as a bride. And what characterizes God as a husband and a groom is this unrelenting covenant faithfulness to his people. He has committed himself to them. He has given himself to them wholeheartedly. 
and he will never turn back on him. You see, in a marriage, what a husband and wife are telling each other, they're saying, I'm giving myself to you exclusively, wholeheartedly. I'm not giving myself to anyone else. We are giving ourselves to each other. And sex is one of the ways that spouses express that kind of unhindered commitment. Right? It's the way of showing someone else, I'm giving myself wholly to you. And the kind of unity that comes from that kind of intimacy inside the confines of the security and commitment of a marriage is unequaled. It is a reflection of the intimacy that God has with his people. That's why sex is designed for marriage. Those are good gifts, but they're not about us, they're about God. And the reason why God, that's the reason why God takes them so seriously. So when we practice that stuff, when we use sexuality for our own gains, when we do it as we see fit, not only are we ignoring and rebelling against God's good design, what we're actually doing is proclaiming lies about him because with all our lives, we are all bearing God's image and reflecting something about him. And so when we practice our sexuality and we practice marriage outside of his design, what we're doing is we're telling lies about who he is. We're saying that the God whose image we bear and whose character we're called to reflect, that he's unfaithful, he's uncommitted, that he just uses people for his own gain, that he does not truly love them, and that he's willing to let them go as soon as they stop meeting his needs. And yet that is the exact opposite of what God has shown us to be true about who he is. We're going to see later this summer the whole point of the book of Hosea in the Old Testament is that God is relentlessly faithful to his people in spite of their relentless unfaithfulness to him. That's the whole point. And it's this powerfully beautiful and yet sobering picture because it shows us both the reality of our own spiritual adultery towards God and yet it helps to shine light on the magnitude of his covenant faithfulness and his grace and his mercy towards us. See, and all that brings us to the last thing I need to show you in our passage this morning. Even though we are all serious sinners who are guilty of breaking God's law and deserving of just punishment, the good news of the gospel is that instead of condemning us in our sin, God extends to us mercy, the kind of mercy that doesn't just free us from the punishment we deserve, but that sets us free from the power that sin has over us in the first place. Look at the end of the passage with me. All the religious leaders, they've, they've come to face to face with their own sin and hypocrisy and in turn they've all just walked away until just Jesus and this woman are left standing there. He says to her in verse 10, straightened up, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, Jesus has already agreed with the religious leaders that she is guilty and that according to the law of Moses that she does indeed deserve death, that that's the right punishment. But instead of banging the gavel and pronouncing her judgment and punishment, Jesus instead extends her a beautiful mercy. He says, neither do I condemn you. What he's saying is, you are guilty. You are guilty. And the punishment they have said is correct. 
and yet I do not condemn you. The punishment that you deserved, I remove. I have taken it away. Can you imagine the kind of like weight that must have been lifted from her in that moment? She's been caught in the midst of this sexually exploitative situation and paraded out in front of all these people. And yet Jesus has shown her this deep compassion and an incredible mercy. And the question that you have to ask is, how can Jesus say that to her? Doesn't that that contradict with, with God's word in the Old Testament? Like, what's going on there? Well, the reason Jesus can tell her that he, that God doesn't condemn her sin is because Jesus knew he was about to be condemned for it himself. You see, he was about to pay the penalty for her adultery along with every other sin she'd committed by dying in her place for her sin on the cross. And the one person in the whole story who doesn't have any sin, like the, just like the beautiful irony, it's like the one person without sin is the one person who is willing to pay the penalty for it. And he does it so she might be set free from the penalty that she deserved. First Peter says it this way, For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed, but instead with the precious blood of Christ. To the good news of the gospel is that Jesus pays the penalty you and I deserve. We are all serious sinners who are desperately in need of God's grace. But the good news of the gospel doesn't stop there because it's also this message that when you see the seriousness of your sin and also the magnitude of his grace and mercy, what actually happens is you now have the power that you need and the motivation that you need to overcome the power of sin in your life today, not just in the end. See, Jesus doesn't just tell this woman, I, I, I don't condemn you. He says, he calls her to leave her life of sin. And that, the order of that statement is so important. You see, religion, it always says, if I obey, then I'll get God's love. Then I'll get his forgiveness. Then I'll get his acceptance. My obedience is the condition. And yet the gospel always relentlessly says, it's because you have been shown grace. It's because you have been shown mercy. It's because you have been loved when you didn't deserve it. That's the motivation that empowers your obedience. See, God's mercy is the power that liberates us from sin. It is not the reward for liberating yourself. J.D. Greer, one pastor, he puts it this way. He says, Jesus liberates you from the power of sin, not by holding out a reward in front of you for liberating yourself. Your captivity to sin is far too great for that. Instead, Jesus liberates you by becoming sin for you and by suffering its consequences in your place. And when you see that, when you see all that Jesus has done for you, when you didn't deserve it, when you could not have earned it, what will happen is you'll actually have the power and the motivation that you need to fight sin and to pursue holiness and obedience every day. Thomas Chalmers, the famous Puritan preacher, he wrote a famous sermon, and he, called, he talks about this reality. He's, he refers to it as the expulsive power of a new affection. He writes this, Neither you or I or anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection, for the heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. 
And if that new affection is the love of God, then it will draw the heart of the sinner towards him. You see what Chalmers is saying and what Jesus is saying and what the, the testimony of the scriptures as a whole are saying is that the only way for, that we can control the strong temptations that we have of sin and sex and sexual sin and all those things is not to try to manage them, but instead to replace them, to overshadow them with a stronger affection. See, being captivated by Jesus' grace and his mercy, seeing the beauty of his purity and his faithfulness to you in spite of, in the midst of your unfaithfulness to him, that is the one thing. It's the one thing that will captivate your heart in a way that gives you the power to live for him because it's hard to do. No amount of rules, no amount of boundaries, no amount of bridges you set up, none of that stuff will work. It's not bad or wrong to do, but what you need most is the new affection that derives it all out. See, in other words, when you see Jesus' purity for you, when you see his faithfulness to you in spite of all your unfaithfulness and impurity, when you see that he sacrificed himself for you, when you see the price that he paid so that he could show you mercy instead of condemning you in judgment, then what happens is your heart is full of a joyful gratitude and a longing to obey him in everything. That's the one way it changes. And so it's Jesus' substitutionary death for us that pays the penalty for our sin. That's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating every week when we take communion. And reminding ourselves of his body and his blood that was broken and shed for us in our place so that even though we were condemned, we could go free. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be the one who pays the penalty your sin deserves, and if you submit to him as king and as Lord, then go back during our time of communion and dip the bread in the juice. There's a table in the back on the left and on the right, and do it as a reminder of all that he has done for you. But if you're here this morning, you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him, or, or you're just realizing you kind of have this like head-level familiarity with him, but it's not, a, it's not a, an expulsive power of a new affection for him. And I want to encourage you this morning. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, Jesus, your grace is all I need. And I am completely dependent on you. And if for the first time you do that this morning, then go back and take communion. But if not, it's okay to hold off. I just want you to know wherever you're at, you're welcome here. And your questions are welcome and your process is welcome. And the, in the midst of struggling with sin and figuring out what you think about that, you are welcome here. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And I want to encourage you as we celebrate the gospel and remember and communion in song, I want to encourage you to talk with God. See, some of you are here and you need to receive God's mercy for the first time. Like the rest of us, the truth is you are a spicy, serious sinner who is guilty before a holy God. And whether that's sexual sin or any other kind, the truth is that we are all mutinous rebels who have rejected his good authority and enthroned ourselves. And we are all equally 
desperately in need of his grace. It's the picture that we have here in our passage this morning, or that we have repeated throughout God's word, is that either you will pay the penalty for your sin, or Jesus will. And I just want to encourage you this morning, let him pay it for you. He's already given himself for you. Receive what he has done. Others of you, though, you're here this morning and you have this tendency like the Pharisees to see the sin of others with this vicious clarity while ignoring your own sin, whether it's sexual or otherwise. And I think God's word this morning, it might be graciously convicting you like he did with the Pharisees of your own sin, not only so that you might experience the better joy of receiving his mercy rather than trying to like hang on tightly to your own self-righteousness, but also that you might be characterized by his humility and his graciousness as you reflect his image and as you proclaim his goodness to other sinners who need it just as much as you do. It's one of the surest signs that you do not know his mercy or that you have forgotten this is if you are characterized by a judgmental spirit towards others and sins. God's character towards our sin He sees it and the scriptures say that he is full of compassion for us. Is that what characterizes the way that you look at the sin of others? Is self-righteousness or is compassion? Let God's grace reorient your heart. Lastly, for all of us, the gospel doesn't just set us free from the penalty of sin, it sets us free from its power And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you're going to fight sin and if you're going to pursue obedience to Jesus, the thing that you need to prioritize is looking at Jesus. Is being with him, asking him to captivate your attention, asking the goodness of his grace, the power of his mercy, asking him to help you experience the overwhelming expulsive power of a new affection that comes for you. Ask him to let that be the thing that fuels your obedience to him. Ask him to give you the expulsive power of a new affection so that you and I, so that we might not live, that we might live no longer to gratify ourselves, but instead for the glory of the one who died, so that you and I might be set free from sin's power and its penalty. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. And we are grateful, Jesus, that even though all of us are spicy, serious sinners, your grace abounds in the midst of it. Now, where our sin abounds, your grace abounds even more. We cannot outsin you. And we are so grateful, Jesus, that when your grace, like the, the seriousness of our sin, meets the, the magnitude of your mercy, Jesus, we're so grateful that when that happens, it transforms our hearts. And it doesn't fill us with guilt and shame, but instead it gives us the expulsive power of a new affection for you that empowers our life to live for you in your glory. And so Jesus, we need you. And we need the good news of the gospel that we see illustrated here and throughout your word. Help us to love you. Help us to have the power to live for you out of our love for you. Amen.